So we have, I wouldn't say any, any pivot or any specific shift, but we've mixed in in the last year, year and a half, a variety of flips as well as buying the mortgages. You know, when you're investing in out of state, you know, I can build a team in any state, any city pretty easy. I mean, I'm going to kiss a few frogs getting there perhaps. <laughs> What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Jay Tenenbaum from Scottsdale REI. Today, we're talking about opportunistic out-of-state investing using notes. And we get into the, the different strategies, what that really means for him and his business. We get into a few examples. We get into how the pandemic has affected the market, what his thoughts are for the future. Are we gonna have a big foreclosure wave coming? Remember, Jay is a guy that is on the debt side of things and, and does foreclose on borrowers as the case may be. So he is right in the trenches in the foreclosure space, seeing what's happening. And I think he has a pretty well-informed opinion about what may be coming for us uh, down the road with regards to any potential uh, foreclosure wave or whether or not it's going to happen. We'll see. Jay gives his opinion in this interview. A lot of great stuff here. It's always good to have multiple strategies, no matter how you're investing. And we talk about that, what that means for Jay and their business. So all very good stuff. Opportunistic, out-of-state real estate investing using the node strategy and what that all means. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Notes are a great way to invest in real estate, become the bank, get on the debt side of things. And uh, it's great to learn from such an experienced guy like Jay. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do go leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me the warm and fuzzies because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. It's all about growing, growing those around you and growing you and your wealth, helping you escape the Wall Street casino once again. One last time, our guest is Jay Tenenbaum from Scottsdale REI. Here we go to talk about opportunistic out-of-state real estate investing. Jay, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, thanks for being welcome. To, my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to talking with you about out-of-state investing. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business and what you do, can you tell us about yourself and your investing strategy? Certainly. So uh, my name is Jay Tenenbaum, and I am a full-time real estate investor. Since 2013, uh, I started investing in distressed mortgage notes, and I've done over uh, 450 deals over about 40 different states, including Hawaii recently. I was a debt collection attorney before that. So really, I like to say that uh, I've been in debt all my life, just not personally. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was an easy transition uh, just, you know, to start investing in a different debt instrument than what I've been, what I had experienced in for 20 years. Nice. And you said 40 different states. Uh, and how, how much do you focus on like making sure they're out of state? I mean, you were telling me before uh, we hit record that you formerly lived in California when you first got started, you now live in Arizona. And at the time you were investing out of state for, you know, basically return related reasons. So can you tell us about that? Certainly. So yeah, when I started investing in 2013, 
the price of mortgage notes in California was like 80, 90 cents on the dollar. Um, you know, you're, you'll find that because, you know, the foreclosure, you know, fast foreclosures in those areas command a higher pricing. So if you're willing to wait, uh, then you're getting uh, bigger discounts in like the Midwest and the South where, you know, the foreclosure process takes a little longer. And in the beginning, I was investing a lot in really low balance assets. Basically, you know, back then, you know, with the economy back then, a lot of, you know, pr our properties were still in, very much underwater. So I'm buying a mortgage note on a property in the Midwest, which is middle class neighborhoods for about, you know, the house is worth about 50 grand, which is middle class American in the Midwest versus, you know, million dollars in California still. And I'm buying it for maybe 10 grand and then working out, keeping the borrowers in their homes and working out loan modifications. So I'm generating the cash flow by working out tons of loan modifications, um, which is something, you know, as I started this, I wasn't really sure what my investor ID was going to look like. Uh, you know, I wanted to get into real estate. I didn't know how or when. I've been to other places where, you know, come Monday morning, I didn't know how to find my first deal. And so I thought, okay, mortgage notes gave me an opportunity to do so as an acquisition strategy. And then quickly I learned that, well, you know, after 20 years of debt collection law practice, we generated a pretty stable and, and, and consistent monthly cash flow, wage garnishments and stipulation payments, et cetera, to where, why don't I just rebuild that? And buying a ton of these low value assets, I mean, I bought a uh, hundred and alone in 2015 and 77 in 2016. Um, I was generating pretty decent cash flow on that kind of stuff. Um, we've since modified our, our investor ID a little bit adapting and becoming opportunistic in the marketplace, but that's really the passive side. I and mean, we've, you know, we went in 2017 price of mortgage notes went, got a little higher. So we started buying rentals um, and developed, you know, passive cash flow of rental properties, which we still own. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic hit and we got the opportunity, not knowing what the moratoriums were going to look like. We got the opportunity to go back into mortgage notes, buying higher value, reverse mortgages that are, we're going to foreclosure pretty quick. Um, and we've been really fortunate in this marketplace that a lot of our mortgages are getting paid off at auction. So we're still a little bit more of a of segueing and more of a transactional engineer a little bit here and there. Um, low mods just don't make sense when you're buying assets for 200,000, 100,000 here or there. It, the numbers just don't work. But the insurance for our investors have been extraordinary. And so that's that's still that still works. And that's really, you know, kind of the, the nuts and bolts. I mean, you know, when I moved to Arizona, you know, just continue on, you know, wash and repeat of what I knew how to do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. There's something uh, that's really interesting about this that you've kind of alluded to a few times are the, the realities behind uh, foreclosing on properties or earlier on, you mentioned that the timeframes in, I think, California compared to the Midwest, if I'm interpreting correctly, sounded like at least the time foreclosures were a lot faster in the Midwest than in California. Is that right? Did I get that? It's, 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 it's backwards. In okay, California so. and, and the West Coast, you're foreclosing on the deed of trust, which has a self-executing instrument. So you're going to foreclosure in about 120, you're getting the sale in about 120 days. In the Midwest, they're called judicial states, and you're actually filing a lawsuit and serving the borrowers and then getting to judgment and going to sale. It's about a six to nine month process. Interesting. And that obviously the, the time factor uh, impacts your return. But I guess as an attorney yourself, maybe you're saving, you know, some of the costs there and in, in, in the legal side of things. You're just generating much bigger discounts on the, on the acquisition. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, okay. So the returns, returns are, the returns are fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, your cash on cash returns are great. Um, yes, when you factor in the time, it's a little longer, but I mean, as the sponsor, as the operator, we're just building a pipeline. As the investor, you know, the investor would understand that the investment uh, commitment was, we usually run with our, our some of our, our capital commitments like two years, only with regards to if we're buying one or four or seven or whatever, we'll, li- we'll be able to liquidate the entire pool within two years. Usually about six, nine months to foreclosure. If we're gonna generate a loan modification, that's great. Either keep it for the residual cash flow, or you sell it as a value-add performing loan, um, and and you know and cash out that way. And that's really what the investor's uh, you know decision. Gotcha. Okay. Now you also mentioned about uh, foreclosures here during the pandemic, and you know they there's always this conversation about okay, at least the the government sponsored entities are not really allowed to foreclose. At least at this point, I, I don't keep that much up with that side of things. But you know, there's once these are over, we're going to get quote unquote a, a foreclosure wave and an eviction wave, and it's all going to fall apart. Now you're different. The rules are probably almost certainly different for you and your ability to foreclose on borrowers, you know, right now. But can you tell us about that? How the you know regulations, if if they've impacted your you know ability to foreclose at all, if it slowed it down, especially with court last year, they were probably closed for months and months and months in different areas. There's a big backlog. You're dealing with the courts. So how does that all impact your business? Sure, great question. Okay, so. At the time of the pandemic, we were, our portfolio was primarily rental properties. And just like anybody else as a landlord, we were starting to get concerned going, what were, you know, March rents were fine because the pandemic really didn't, you know, come into play until mid, mid-March, et cetera. April, we kind of figured, you know what, people still have some holdover money. Um, the reports of just how long this was going to last, you know, if some, you know, if you remember, hey, it's going to be two weeks or it's going to be two years. Nobody really knew. Well, we're um, pushing two years. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, so then, you know, come May and June got was we, we, we expected to get a little scary because we knew people were running out of money. Then, we, you know, the stimulus propped that up. Um, actually, some of our rental portfolios performed better in the pandemic, in the midst of the pandemic last in spring of 2020 in early summer than they did prior to that. Because the thing was the demand for housing, as we saw in you know what, what was a result, you know, the direct result of the pandemic was the demand for housing remained really, really strong, even on the rental side. And you know, and when a property would go vacant, we still have multiple applications to, to re-rent it, right? Not a big, not a big deal there. With regard to foreclosures, there's a different, different analysis, and that is you've got the federal moratoriums which really don't apply to what we buy because we're really not buying a whole lot of federally backed mortgages. So the four federal moratoriums really don't, didn't have an effect on us because we weren't buying those type of mortgages anyway. So we were relative analyzing, you know, what the situation was in the particular states, right? Like with the state have moratoriums and certain, certain states lifted moratoriums faster than others. Um, for example, we were looking at a loan in uh, Massachusetts, right out in the suburb, right outside Boston, um, and my partner spent some time there, his daughter goes to school there, and he's salivating over this loan. Go, we gotta have this, we gotta have this. I'm like, look, you don't want this, spend that kind of money. It was like $350,000 purchase because the moratoriums are in place, you won't go anywhere. I mean, we looked at this probably mm, early summer of 2020, maybe, right? With all this going on, and we just kept watching it going, okay, you know, I, I, we check in every once in a while to see, you know, what the Massachusetts was looking like. And lo and behold, around November, uh, the courts, the moratoriums in Massachusetts were lifting. 
and already had a, a judgment. So uh, we were ready, you know, ready to go to sale. And so we pulled the trigger, bought at the end of December, and it went. It was supposed to go to sale in May, uh, and the borrower filed bankruptcy, got that dismissed in two weeks. We ended up going to sale July 29th. Um, we bought it for 350, and we actually got paid off at auction. We we were owed more than than what the house was worth, so we kind of strategically set the the bid amount at 500,000. Going, maybe we get it, maybe we don't, right? Because the house is worth about 585, 600,000. And we were fine with taking it back and rehabbing it and selling it ourselves. But because the market, even on the foreclosure side, is so hot, somebody bid $501,000. So we should be getting paid off next month. <laughs> nice. So you mentioned uh, they, they filed bankruptcy uh, in there in that, in that process. How does that affect you? You said you got the dismissed in two weeks. I mean, I imagine this varies by state, but that's actually an aspect of note investing that I haven't uh, haven't discussed with anybody before. How does how does the borrower filing bankruptcy? Affect well, the bar the, this borrower filed a Chapter Thirteen, and we knew from the beginning it was a stall tactic because when you file a Chapter Thirteen, you've got to file a bunch of paperwork behind it, and all they filed was like one page, like on the eve the day before the foreclosure, and we knew it was a stall tactic. So the bankruptcy court asked him, "Okay, you need to supplement your filing," and when you don't, the bankruptcy court says you're stalled. And dismissed it. Um, when we first when he first filed, my attorneys wanted to postpone the sale sixty days because we didn't know how long it would take for the bankruptcy court to dismiss it. We didn't expect him to comply anyway. Um, this court was actually really quick because two weeks is pretty much of an anomaly to get it dismissed. So we we would have been ready to go in thirty days, which I really wanted in the beginning, but it ended up being sixty days, and we, and we were ready to go July 29th, which which went off. So it was fine. Interesting. Okay. So do you see yourself shifting back to, you know, more of a rental investing model at this point? And the, the eviction moratoriums are still in place, despite what the you know, Supreme Court had to say about that. Um, what are your thoughts moving forward? Is, is note investing, you know, it really, I think the question really comes down to is note investing still working? Because otherwise, I don't know why you shift back to rentals, so to speak. So we are, we, as I said before, we strive to be opportunistic. So we have, I wouldn't say any any pivot or any specific shift, but we've mixed in, in the last year, year and a half, a variety of flips as well as buying the mortgages. You know, when you're investing in out of state, you know, I can build a team in any state, any city pretty easy. I mean, I'm gonna kiss a few frogs getting there perhaps, but <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're getting the right realtor who's an investor friendly realtor who has relationships with contractors um, and property managers, et cetera, all one, one, one stop shop. So we were fortunate enough that when we were buying a note last spring, been about a year or so, or a year, I reached out to build a team in Pittsburgh. We we're buying a note in Pittsburgh. And I found, found an absolute queen. I mean, she is a wholesaler. She's a realtor. She's our property manager. She's our project manager on our flips. We've successfully done three flips. We're under renovation of a 14 unit and under renovation on a on two on another flip and just went under contract on another flip. And those are all deals that she brought to us. And then we've got mortgage notes that we're looking at in Pittsburgh. She puts eyeballs on those very efficiently. And so we build a very strong market there. But when you're buying mortgage notes, you can't predict where you're going to get, you know, access, what, what inventory you're going to get. So it's not like we can just focus on Pittsburgh and be done with it. <laughs> um, and we've got other, you know, other teams built other, in other markets as, as well. Um, so when she brings us a flip deal or something in Pittsburgh, we, you know, we take a look at it strongly. Um, and so we've diversified a little bit, but the, the mortgage market is, um, is still very strong. 
Um, you mentioned before, um, my personal opinion is I don't believe that when the moratoriums finally end, et cetera, that you can see this wave of foreclosures. I don't, I just don't see it. Um, why? A variety of factors. Um, number one, unlike the crash, you know, homeowners have equity in their houses now. So for starters, let me take a step back. For starters, when the forbearances, when the pandemic hit and the forbearances were being rolled out, I read an article about 80% or so, I don't remember what the exact percentage was, of borrowers actually at the time that they um, applied for the for, for their forbearance actually could still afford their home. Now they were doing it as a precaution. They were doing it because they didn't know what their job was, situation was going to be in the coming months, um, but they still could economically afford their home financially. And a lot of those people, and you know, now that we you know go, two years later or whatever, um, are back repaying their loans. The ones who aren't, who've been affected, you know, unmercifully through this all, are going to have to come to grips with they just have to sell because economically they can't afford it anymore, and they have the ability to sell. The emotional component of they, it's their house. Maybe a stumbling block to some, and some will get foreclosed on because they can't get out of their own way to come to that, that reality. So I don't see between some of the, the, the forbearances are starting to will taper off. Uh, people will sell their homes um, and the foreclosures. Although you know statistically, I think the you know you always track that you know if we, we forget that you know in 2005, 2006, right, a lot of markets still had a, you know buying property at auction. Was still a very strong investor, you know, in, in acquisition strategy for many, many investors. Even though the economy was fantastic, so it doesn't always be foreclosures are rampant in a bad economy where the economy turns south. There's always foreclosures just because you know everybody's got their own situation. Um, and I think right now, pre-pandemic, we were getting right around the 2006 levels again. I've had this tape, you know, so we weren't dead, we weren't, we're none, but they were still running around that. And I think it's gone up, picked up a little bit, but, you know, and I don't think that people are going to sell their house in such, in any particular market, in such great glut, that you can see, it for, you know, inventory is going up a little bit in certain markets, but, you know, as long as interest rates stay down and the, and the inventory doesn't go appreciably spike up, I think you'll see a lot of the same status quo. That's my personal opinion. Okay. That's a, that long as interest rates stay down is a, is a big if, but you know, the, I, I don't see that. I don't see them flying upward. The money printer is going to keep rolling. So, you know, the rates will probably stay that way now. You talk about being opportunistic and, you know, that's great. It's great that you're, you're able to be successful with that. But my interpretation of that is if I'm trying to be opportunistic for me, I might end up getting shiny object syndrome and losing my focus and just getting too spread too thin. So how do you avoid like th that temptation of just getting distracted by something that looks like a great opportunity and you, you know, don't end up doing it because it's, it's, it's actually tough to do that, to, to do multiple strategies without just, you know, being bad at a bunch, right? Actually, no. And I'll tell you why, when you invest in mortgage notes, you've got the availability of last count, 12, 15, 14 different exit strategies, depending on, you know, how you're working through that, that note. So um, we've always had the flexibility of varying exit strategies. So really, it's a matter of if we're analyzing a note or analyzing a property, um, we, the, our analytics don't change much. Um, we run it through our proprietary ROI, our, you know, return on investment calculator to know, kind of projected what the various exit strategies are going to look like. Um, we may have our preferred exit strategy on certain assets that we buy, but not, we, you know, but that's not a, a predisposed, you know, 
one size fits all kind of thing. So really not change when we say opportunistic, we're still looking at the same deals, whether it's a more whether it's a node or a property, mm. and still looking at it in terms of which exit may fit that may fit may best fit that um, structure. We're not like buying property or buying real or buying notes and there's a and there's a, a, a totally independent process or, or analysis there really isn't okay so it's all acquisitions through notes initially and then just a different way to or a variety of different ways to dispose of um, those acquisitions or to correct correct and and you know as, as we've grown as a company you know we've had access to like we've got a, a you know credit facility that allows us to i mean we're kind of got a pretty we've evolved into kind of a, what we believe is a pretty unique uh, model. And that is we'll buy, let's say we're buying a mortgage note. Well, you know, banks don't know how to securitize mortgage notes because all we're doing is buying the assignment of the more originating mortgage from somebody else who had it before us. Right. So we're raising private capital to do that. But once, it, you know, unless, unless we get paid off at auction, if we take the property back, then we now own the, own the note as a their property goes from note to property. Now we own it. Right. So then we bring in our credit facility of which, allows us to return, you know, 70, 90% of the investor's capital and get angry. I mean, the credit facility gets us hundred percent of the rehab. And so now we're doing a fix and flip as an exit strategy. Okay. So we're basically raising private capital, returning it mm, 70, 90% in around average about six months. And then, um, make, you know, they got less cash in their deal. So the bringing in the leverage enhances their returns. Okay. So it's all tools in the toolbox. It's not, uh, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. Great. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called GroundFloor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Jay, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Um. You know, you do 400 and some deals, you real, you don't really, you get amnesia. It's like, what was my best deal? It's probably the one I did yesterday. <laughs> because I, I think we, we pride ourselves, you know, the wash, rinse, repeat has become so efficient that, you know, what's it, I mean, let's, you know, like you get semantic, what's a good deal? I mean, were the investors happy? That was a good deal. Um, is it the amount of, of revenue, we, you know, profit we generated? I think that's kind of short-sighted. I, I think 
you know, good, I would answer the question, good deals were best investments were, um, you know, did I help the bar, keep, keep the borrower in their home? Did I, you know, provide affordable housing to certain borrowers? I mean, I've done all of that, right? Um, you know, we've done some investments that, you know, didn't initially pan out like we thought and end up by the passage of time ended up better. Uh, for example, uh, we bought, I bought a note in Ohio a long time ago, it was 2015. And when it went to auction, I told my attorney, you know, just figure out, fill out whoever else is bidding. I don't really care where it goes for. But he was too rigid about it. And so, so he bid, he, I told, he said, well, I need a bottom line number. And he said 60,000. I said 60,000, whatever. So some in third party investor bid 59, he bid 60, and the guy dropped out. And I would have gladly take, you know, let it go for $59,000. I was into it for like $35,000, right? Um, so we took the property back. Uh, there was a tenant in there. I rented it to the tent, kept the tenant in there for three and a half years, getting $600 a month, tried really hard with her to sell her finance it or she would get a conventional mortgage and buy the house for me. Finally, the one way or the other that she could never pull it off, we, uh, you know, she decided she was going to move out. And then we sold, we sold the house for $110,000 oh, as, nice. as is. So, you know, it, 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 it was a win-win in a lot of areas. I mean, she, you know, she was my tenant for three and a half years. She would have bought the house, but she ended up not doing it. Um, you know, things like that. Um, so, you know, the one in Quincy, that's a good deal. I mean, they're all, you know, we, we, we're very, we're very conservative. And so it's not here like, you know, nothing's ever a bad deal. We're very conservative. And the deals we, that we do pull the trigger on, we pass on a lot of, on, on, on you know, probably six out of 50, what we'll buy versus what we'll go through just because we're that conservative um, in what, what makes sense. Mm, okay. Okay. Appreciate that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment I ever made was uh, early on in my career. Uh, we bought a pool of, I want to say 15 notes, whatever. And we did a, 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 a interesting job on our diligence. And what I mean by that is back then we're buying the low value stuff. We really were focused on buying uh assets that were that were occupied so we could do the loan mods and we kind of switched our, our tried a new strategy during diligence of checking with water and electricity to see if determine occupancy electricity is more accurate but you never get a hold of an electric company water isn't very isn't very accurate but you get a hold of somebody hmm. and so out of those 16 loans i want to say only like five or six were occupied so it was just, it was just a bad pool mm, interesting but so I mean, we, we made money on it but it was just a bad pool kind of uh more headaches than normal we 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 to liquidate that pool we grinded it out pretty good <laughs> fair enough my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing most important lesson i've learned um be resourceful adapt and never stop growing um you know i've done this for eight years now I've done a lot of deals um, my business partner who is the financial and the analytical side of life. I'm more the asset manager, the capital raising piece of our, of our company. So obviously I have more of the, of the investing experience that he does. And yet they're in, in, in they're often he still pushes me, pushes me to be, to be, to be better, to uh, push it, push has pushed me to delegate as we've grown and scaled up. The necessity to delegate has become very prevalent in our company. And he's pushed me to do that. Not because I'm a control freak. It's just <laughs> how, how to find the right person to delegate to, how to, you know, train that person, et cetera. And when you still got so many moving parts that happen on a daily basis. So 
I've I've grown a lot as a as a, as a business partner in the last year or so. We've been, our partnership is about over about three years old now. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. And Jay, I want to thank you for joining us today and teaching us about opportunistic out-of-state real estate investing using notes as an entry point. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about your business or any investments that you provide or anything like that, where can they track you down? Certainly. So um, we write, there's a variety of ways. I mean, my company is Scottsdale REI, uh, scottsdalerei.com. Uh, so you can connect with us on our, on our website. Also, my email is jay at scottsdalerei.com. Uh, and my phone number, I'll give out my phone number. Whoa. Nobody will ever call it. 714-458-6317. Um, we also have our podcast that we kind of put together in the pandemic, uh, reimastermind.live. We do it on the first and third uh, Tuesdays of every month, where we bring in other experts that aren't that are in, in fields that aren't related to us because we don't know it all and we don't profess to know it all. Um, so come check out our podcast as as, as well. Um, get a little more, a little you know, a little bit more about us as well. Um, so welcome the opportunity, uh, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a great pleasure talking with you, and I want to thank you for joining us. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me the warm and fuzzies because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.